This 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 Let's be honest. Talking about our faith, it can get hard sometimes. Sometimes we get caught up in the world, but now the world will have to get caught up in us. We're here to talk about it. We're here to talk about our real faith. We're here to talk about the real God. For unapologetic apologetics everywhere, welcome to Tactical Faith Radio. I think where uh, we wanted where, where we wanted to be in number one is obviously we're a, an apologetics group, so we are uh, interested in how do you talk to people who don't believe in Jesus about Jesus. Okay, um, but I find that what we're up against um, in at least in, in Western culture is not no knowledge of Jesus, it's, it's which version of Jesus are you talking about? There's, there's, there's lots of people who know about Jesus. with the slight case of Jesus that's preventing them from getting the real thing. Exactly, exactly. Okay, all right. So can you talk a little bit, because uh, you are uh, a, an expert in, in Christology, uh, about what kinds of, of versions of Jesus do you see that are most prevalent in in, in the West, and, and I guess I'm gonna. That's a two-part question. Maybe we'll say within the church, because I because I know that some people within the church are pushing versions of Jesus that are not the historical or objective Jesus, and then and then maybe what's coming from the culture as well. Well, it depends on what kind of Christian tradition we're talking about. You know, I mean, with uh, for example, with African American traditions, Jesus as a prophetic figure, like an Amos or a Micah, is a huge part of uh, their whole tradition, as is the Exodus Sinai experience. Very, very big because it's, you know, about liberating slaves. And, and so it just depends on which part of Protestantism we're talking about. Liberal white Protestantism likes, you know, Jesus the teacher. Uh, and in a different way, Jesus the prophet. You know, Jesus the sort of radical or revolutionary prophet. Um, conservative Protestantism uh, has tended to sort of spiritualize Jesus. It's the gentle Jesus, meek and mild, uh, accessible to children and friendly to animals. That, that kind of Jesus, you know. Um, the Mr. Rogers Jesus. Yeah. Can you say neighbor? I knew you could. <laughs> you know, uh, that Jesus. Uh, and so, you know, we have our caricatures, which have just enough of a grain of truth in it to, to ring with some, some texts in the New Testament. Um, but what, what seems to be lacking in most of these Protestant, Catholic, and even Orthodox visions of Jesus is any real clear sense of Jesus being a Jew. Now, in my lifetime, of course, there has arisen what is called Messianic Judaism. You have people who are followers of Jesus who are also practicing the Jewish law, okay? But that's actually a pretty recent phenomenon, uh, to say the least. And certainly not a dominant phenomenon in any of the Protestant, Catholic, or Orthodox traditions. Um, so, sort of dealing with Jesus as a Jewish person, part of the Jewish culture, speaking to Jews, all of his disciples being Jews, not proto-Christians, that hasn't registered too much, and, and still, even today, is not registered enough. That is one of the reasons I've done a lot of dialogues with Jewish New Testament scholars like A.J. Levine, because 
is such an important part of who he is that if you don't understand that, you've misunderstood a very significant part of the significance of why Jesus came and who are the chosen people and a whole host of those kinds of things. You, you, you don't understand Paul either because, you know, Paul in Romans 9 says it's not like God has forsaken his first chosen people. Mm -hmm. well, who are they? Who are they? I got you. I got you. Um, but then regarding in terms of uh, what, you, what do you see coming maybe from Western culture yeah. that doesn't necessarily come from within the church? Right. So where, where do you see some of those versions of Jesus maybe, you know, uh, things well, that we have to... Well, uh, let me give you an example. I'm reading an article from the Rolling Stone today sitting in the airport, and it's about Mike Pence. Yeah. Okay? And uh, it talks about Mike Pence in Indiana, his response to the problems of poverty in some of the inner cities in Indiana, and how... If uh, a white community, like the blue-collar folks, are slipping into poverty, how he responds to the challenge by going, seeing them, and saying, you know, we'll get some governmental help for you and all that, when when the same requests were made by African Americans in, say, for example, Gary, Indiana, which is just terrible, the poverty in Gary, Indiana, is terrible, and he's he's not he's like never responded to that. So the, the commentator in this Rolling Stone article says, I don't know which <laughs> Jesus Mike Pence worships, but as it doesn't it doesn't seem to be the one who said, and as much as you've done it unto the least of these, you've done it unto me. And I thought, now that's a pretty telling comment of somebody who actually quoted the Bible first that's meaningfully revealing something of Jesus' character. Yeah. So, you know, I think we see all kinds of distortions of Jesus. Uh and one of the more prevalent ones is, you know, never was heard a discouraging word from Jesus. Jesus is not judge, no. He's he's not uh, he's not given to righteous wrath, etc. He's just loving on everybody, you know. Which again is a lopsided picture of Jesus. So we have all kinds of distortions out there. Yeah. Um. So. Would you say, though, it's interesting when, when, when you brought up that, that Rolling Stone article and, and, and what the writer said, I want to get your take on where is the, is the distortion coming from? Uh, in other words, is, is Mike Pence, is that where the distortion is coming from, or is it the Rolling Stone writer casting the verse uh, at, at Mike Pence? Because it, it, it actually, like when I hear that, I think maybe the Rolling Stone writer got it right. And so maybe at times... Sort of well, he may have, or he may have loaded up his gun and, and fired at Mike Pence because he just doesn't like the politics of Mike Pence. Uh, you know, it's hard to know. But me personally, I know plenty of people, white Christians, who just are are not comfortable uh, being inclusive of the kinds of people in dealing with uh, other ethnic groups and dealing with abject poverty of, of an ethnic group is different from your own. I mean, I've run into this pe these people all over the South, haven't grown up in the South, and uh, that's a real, genuine complaint. Uh, and, and, I mean, to this day, the church is largely segregated. Right. You know, and, and well, why is that? It's not just a cultural difference. There's, there's still issues of racism to be addressed, as we saw in the past year in the riots and other things in our culture. It's still, still one of the latent sins of America, uh, going all the way back to you know, slavery and so And um, I, you know, I, I think that Jesus would have had definitely something to say about that. He, he fellowshiped with tax collectors and sinners and. In his view, the kingdom was for everyone. It wasn't just for the plain old decent centers. <laughs> I gotcha. I gotcha. That's good. That's good. So, all centers, not just not just the ones that are dressed nicely, right? Um. So your work, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, seems to be as much. Uh, Precision and exactness, right? Like you, 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 you are a person who's who's very precise, very exact in, in your word choice and whatnot. Um, and, and so you you seem to be in, in your work uh, really trying to get at precisely and exactly who Jesus is. Yeah. 
Uh, and, and you have even gone to great lengths to point out the errors, uh, certainly in, in your own faith tradition as well as in other evangelical faith traditions right. as well. Yep. Um, but one of the things that I, that I really appreciate about your work is that you work uh, exceptionally hard to give those with whom you disagree a fair hearing. Okay, um, so what are some of the? Uh, I guess I'm going to ask you to, to talk nicely here about your enemies or, or, or people that you disagree with for a second, because I think that there are some uh, maybe some misconceptions that uh, we evangelicals have of people like a John Dominic Crossan or a Bart Ehrman yeah. or somebody like that. Oh, sure. What are some common misconceptions that we have that we need to address before we engage folks well, like that? You know, I, I would say first and foremost. That the way we're supposed to relate to everybody, whether we agree with them or not, is we're supposed to love them. And so I, I have worked hard to build friendships with people I even profoundly disagree with. I mean, John Dominic Crossan is one of my favorite heretics. He's a really, really nice person. He's a lot of fun to hang out with. He's funny. He's got all these Irish jokes. And uh, he's, he's just a, he's a nice person to go out and have a meal with and really talk to. And... In his own way and in his own heart, he believes he's accurately representing some key aspects of the gospel and Jesus. He, he's adamant about that. Now, he could be entirely wrong, but you have to honor the intention of the person as well as the articulation. Because much of the articulation in a case like John Donald Crossing is having grown up in rigid Irish Catholicism in Ireland. It's, it's more about what he's reacting against than what he's reacting for or with, you know? And you have to take that into account. Yeah. You have to take that into account. So, I mean, I, I don't have any trouble getting along with him. The ones that I have, I feel more animus coming my way when I do dialogue and debate with them are people like, oh, Dale Martin or, uh, or Bart Herman. Because... Uh, there's more at stake for them. Dale Martin is uh, a gay New Testament professor in Yale, and uh, we agree we we agree on many things about the gospel, but we profoundly disagree about what the Bible teaches about sexual ethic. And since that's such a personal issue for Dale, it's a presenting issue for Dale, and he knows where I stand on this. There's always this sort of right, you know. I'd rather you didn't love please. Thank you. You know, that yeah. kind of thing. And it's even more than that with the case with Bart Ehrman. I mean, Bart Ehrman is a tack dog. He's, he's the anti-evangelist. He grew up in fundamentalist uh, evangelicalism uh, or just straight fundamentalism. And he spent his whole career trying to deconstruct that. And he sees me as the sort of emissary of the defense of that. And and sometimes that's just led to a straight-up misunderstanding. Uh, I mean, I'm not a fundamentalist. I'm sure, not a flat earther. I don't believe the world is 6,000 years old. Uh, those sort of stuff. Well, why not, people, by the way? Yeah, or <laughs> because the Bible is not a scientific text. We talk about this. So there. Um, I'll tell you what happened, though. And, and this was really remarkable. Um, we... Talk a little bit more. We've we've had we've had several dialogues and debates, and I've I've blogged about various of his books. But a after my daughter, our oldest child, died five years ago from a pulmonary embolism, I got a really nice note for him from him, where he said, "I cannot imagine what you must be going through, and I know how devastating that would have affected me if it had been my child." You know, and he just said, I want, just want to say I'm sorry. Now, he wasn't going to say, I'm going to pray for you or whatever. He doesn't really believe in that. But, you know, it was a nice human gesture. And somehow, that kind of took some of the edge off of our discussions. And then after that, he wrote a couple of books that I thought, these are pretty good. Um, one book was about, was there actually a historical <coughs> Jesus? And his answer is yes. So he he, um, you know, he he alienated all his atheist part of his audience <laughs> real quickly with that book. They got really angry with him. All the Zeitgeist people and everybody else got real mad at Bart 
for writing that. And I, you know, I, I wrote a blog review and I praised the parts of it I thought I could really praise. And, and then he wrote a book on pseudepigraphos, you know, falsely ascribed documents. And he makes clear in that book that this was not a literary convention, despite what some liberal Protestants have said over the years, this was not a known literary convention. It was an attempt to deceive people, which I entirely agree with. Yeah, the difference is he thinks there is pseudepigrapha in the New Testament, and I think there's not. But we agree that when you attempt to do that, you are attempting to deceive and be dishonest. Right? We agree on that. So, you know, I, I would say that, you know, he's an apologist for an agnostic point of view. He's, he's not a straight-up He's actually married to an Anglican priest, uh, which must make for some really interesting dinner conversations, <laughs> yeah. to say the least. But uh, I, I would say that, you know, we had this whole thing called the third quest for the historical Jesus in the 90s and into the 21st century. That's pretty much died out or died down, partly because many of the main participants have died. The, the head of the Jesus Seminar, uh, Robert Funk, died, and some of these other people have retired or died. Marcus Borg, you're thinking. And, yeah, Marcus yeah. Borg is gone now. So that, that kind of has died on the vine. But what remains about that is a deep concern with trying to understand who the historical Jesus really was, which is what I've been about all along. You know, uh, when I wrote my book, The Christology of Jesus for Fortress, which was really my first major book other than early books about women in the um, I was really trying to get at the question, how does Jesus view himself? And how do we know? What, what is the hard evidence? And I took a very minimalist approach. What do the vast majority of scholars agree on about what Jesus said? Well, they agree he used the phrase son of man to refer to himself, and he used the phrase kingdom of God to talk about his subject matter that he was preaching about. And uh, on the basis of that kind of evidence, I've built a case that Jesus saw himself as not merely human, but as the figure in Daniel 7 that was intended to judge the world and eventually to be worshipped and have an everlasting kingdom, because that's what Daniel 7, 13, and 14 said. <laughs> The Son of Man will come to judge the earth, and he's been authorized to do that by God the Father. And all nations will worship him, and he will have a forever kingdom. And when you take that text and contrast it to the uh, Samuel text, Samuel seven fourteen, about David will be king, and then his son will be king, Solomon, and then his son will be king, that's about a dynastic monarchy. Daniel 7 is about one person who's going to rule forever, but what kind of person can rule forever by himself? Right? This has got to be a forever person. It's got to be a divine person. So I actually argue that through his own meditation on the Son of Man material, Jesus became um, confirmed in his belief that he was uh, both divine and divine. And, and then he had Know, confirmation from God himself, say at the baptism, you are my son, right? I think that Jesus operated with a normal human consciousness. I think he learned things over time. Luke 2 says he did. So, I mean, there would have been a time, for instance, when Jesus didn't, he didn't know what, you know, 2 plus 2 was, right? Or, or he had to learn the colors, yeah. right? Luke things like that. 52 says he grew in wisdom yeah. and in stature. So he had a normal process of consciousness. It's just he had clear channel stereo, right? <laughs> he had completely clear line to God the Father when God spoke to him. He heard it clearly. He understood it, right? Unlike us, which is it's pretty muddy a lot of the time. Yeah. So there was that difference. And, and then I began to think about, okay, what does incarnation mean? It means divine self-limitation. Jesus assumed the limitation of time, space, knowledge, power, and mortality that are the normal limitations of human beings. Not sin, because sin is not a normal limitation of being. It's not of the essence of human beings. Right. But these other things, he assumed. So, for example, when 
a woman with a hemorrhage touches him and he says, who touches me? Who touched me? He doesn't, he doesn't mean, I know this is Susan. She's wearing a blue dress. She just shopped at Target and she couldn't find a doctor to help her. So she's desperate. She came to me. No, when he says, who touched me? He means, wait for it, who touched me? <laughs> right. His life was not a charade. He was not playing a game. So in Mark 13, 32, when he says, no one knows the timing of the second coming, not even the angels in heaven, not even the Son, only the Father knows he means, I don't know. That's in the Father's hands. That's what he means. So he accepted limitations of time and space and knowledge and power and mortality. And he really died. He didn't just appear to die. He really died. He was a genuine human being. The author of Hebrews says he was tempted in every way we are, which would include sinful and sexual sins as well, save without sin. Right? So he's like us in every respect, save without sin. I think part of the problem for, especially for evangelicals, is they sort of see Jesus as 90% divine and 10% human. You know, less, less, less filling, tastes great. Right? <laughs> uh, the New Testament wants to say he's 100% human and 100% divine. And I think that's in the end, how Jesus viewed himself. So, maybe not in terms of later configurations of that in creedal orthodoxy, like we have at the Council of Chalcedon or Nicaea, but he believed that he was the divine Son of God. And that, and that leads to a very interesting reflection on his temptations, because they are weird. If you look at the temptations of the desert, they are not normal humans. No, not at all. If you are the divine son of God, turn these stones into bread. Now, I've known human beings who could turn bread into stones. Right. But I've never met one who was tempted to turn stones into bread who, were set, who was saying, this is a temptation to push the God. And Jesus is resisting the temptation to push the God. But instead, he's going to draw on the resources we all have, the word of God and the spirit of God. How does he deal with the devil? He deals with the devil, quoting Deuteronomy. Not the first text I would think of, but never mind. He quotes Deuteronomy to the devil, right? And he relies on the Spirit of God. He says he does his miracles by the Spirit of God. If I by the Spirit of God, cast out demons, then you'll know. In other words, his life was lived on the basis of the same two resources every believer has. Now that ought to be enormously comforting and... Uh, challenging right. to us because it, you know, when when Paul says we're supposed to be conformed to the image of Jesus well by golly they're not kidding no they're not kidding when Paul says no temptation has overcome you that's not common to humanity which that God's provided you with resources that you can escape you know the New Testament is ethically serious about us imitating Christ and uh the reason that's even a possibility is the total incarnation of Jesus, the divine condescension. He emptied himself. He stripped himself. Charles Wesley said he emptied himself of all but love and came and lived a fully human life while remaining the divine son of God. And uh, that's what I've tried to argue at length in various ways in the Christology of Jesus and Jesus' was. What have they done with Jesus in various other books to my gospel um, So, in one sense, I think what you're saying is that what, one of the big problems that we continue to have, uh, if I could maybe go for a, uh, like a sports analogy here, it's like that receiver who the ball is coming to him, is in the air, and he looks to run before completing the catch, right? Like, in other words, we, we're, we're out there, we're trying to share Jesus and whatnot, but in reality, what you're saying is we really haven't got all of Jesus completely yet, right? That, that we're all sort of walking around maybe with, with these different versions of Jesus that, that aren't the historical Jesus. Right. So how, how do we know when we have the historical Jesus? Well, um, when I do my uh, dialogues, which I've got another one coming up at the UN Baptist uh, in March, late in March, there are three premises that A.J. Levin and I start with. He teaches New Testament and a, historical Jesus was a Jew. B, historical Jesus uh, had a messianic self-understanding. And C, yes, uh, the, the, the historical Jesus was eschatological in his message. 
Okay. Those three points. We we agree on these three points. She thinks he had a messianic self-understanding when he was wrong. Okay. I think he had a messianic self-understanding when he was right. She thinks his eschatology was rather like Albert Schweitzer. Bless his heart, he thought the world was coming to him next week. He was going to try to break it down. I think that's not what he thought about the eschatology. So we have a basis for discussing with each other. But what, what has happened in the liberal quest of Jesus is the eschatology, the de eschatologically views uh, of Jesus. Jesus has, his eschatology has sort of been erased. So he's a great teller of parables or stories, right? Right. And never was heard a discouraging word and the sky is not cloudy all day. But that's not the Jesus of the Gospels. Even many of his parables are threatening in character. So, uh, you know, I... I think there's a basis to have a conversation with somebody you totally disagree with, even a, a scholarly person. You can find some common ground, and then you have to disagree, uh, agree to disagree on other things. But what I have found, and this is my own experience, not a scientific survey, is that if you begin with a robust uh, articulation of the humanity, that's a much easier starting point than Jesus is God. If you don't repent, you're going right to hell. <laughs> right? So I, I should I should nix that approach from, from my arsenal, right? No, I'm not saying eliminate it altogether. There's a place for it. My grandfather, I asked him one time, why is he such a straight arrow? He was a deacon about this church, and he said, Heaven is too sweet, and hell is too hot to mess around in his life, son. <laughs> I said, yes, sir, granddad, okay. You know, there, there's a place to talk about hell. There's a place to talk about eternal consequences of your actions. But that's not... You have to start with people where they are. And that means you actually have to know where they are. An awful lot of apologetics and evangelism starts with assumptions about who they are and where they are instead of just spending a lot of time listening to find out where they are and what they think about Jesus before downloading your gospel on them, you know? And the way I would say that apologetics or evangelism ought to be done properly is through friendship evangelism. That is, you commit yourself to a long conversation with these people. You get together with them regularly, if humanly possible, over the phone or over the internet or Skype or whatever you're going to do. And I have these conversations with people all over the world who keep having a zillion questions. And sometimes it's just overwhelming I get so many emails about this sort of stuff. But I'm committed to the conversation, you know, and and sometimes there's a real eureka moment and a payoff, you know, and, but it's often years later. Now I'll hear from Simon and say, I don't know if you know this, but Christology of Jesus changed my life. I was skeptical about Jesus for but, you know, and I'm going, well, hallelujah, that was one of the intended outcomes, you know. Um, so... It's a long project, and I think because our culture keeps changing, we're now at a place where people seem to be more hostile towards the Christian faith than in cases. So now we've got to overcome not just ignorance, but antagonism. And that's a whole other ballgame, overcoming antagonism and this false impression of all of that. And, and the only way I know to do that is to tell the truth and be honest and transparent and say, okay, yes, sometimes the church really screws up, and sometimes it misrepresents Jesus, and so on. And that's the only way to deal with that kind of Is the antagonism, is that there because of uh, something that we have done in the church, something that we've done wrong? Is it... Is it arguments that we're carrying on? Is it is it things that we're... Uh, I mean, what, where does that come from? There's a lot of different sources of it. Some of it comes indeed from the foibles and sins of the church itself, which are rightly critiqued by anybody and should have been critiqued by us more thoroughly. Yeah, so that's some of it, but that's by no means all of it. Because a lot of what people think the church is about is based, is based on what they see Christians uh, doing in the public sphere. For example, what are their politics, right? Um, whether we like it or not, they may well judge 
what they think of Jesus by what we do politically. Sure, sure. And boy, I, I just have to say, I hope not. Right. Most, right. I hope not because that will be incredibly misleading. I mean, I, I have Christian friends all over the world, and you know, after this last election, they were asking me. What the hell are you doing? Right. You know, that can't possibly be Christian. How did that happen? And I'm going, well, it would take me about three hours to explain to you why so many evangelical Christians voted the way they did on this. Uh, because we have a sort of schizophrenia between our public views and our private faith. And, and instead of those two things informing each other, it often doesn't. And, and that's not good. That's an interesting question because it seems like a lot of people uh, look to Jesus and, and try to claim him as the champion of their particular views. And I know the <clears throat> if you look at uh, uh, some scholars on in the New Testament, you pick, uh, particularly the way that Jesus interacted with the political views of the Jews of his time and Rome, um, or some will argue that he's not really – He's difficult to claim politically. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, he's sort of a super political or anti political or something like that. Um, or even character. Or if you're an Amish person. Yeah, <laughs> I, my dad was Amish. So, um, uh, how would you, I guess, because I'm, I'm very interested in this, what do you think are the best, or how would you go about interpreting, um, interpreting how the church should take? the Christian faith, and and I'm not necessarily looking to say they need to vote Democrat or they need to no. vote Republican, but no. what are the methods of taking Christ's teaching and applying it into a, a multicultural, multi-religion, uh, kind of quote-unquote secular society political establishment? Well, I, you know, I think, as I said, you have to start with people where they are, not where you like them to be. And that actually turns out to be, let's have a conversation about ethics. Okay, and let's pick some ethical subjects that Jesus actually cleared his throat and spoke to, mm-hmm. right? Like, turn the other cheek, don't resist if they want to take this piece of property of yours, some of those things. And we don't even have to take the, the most radical of these. Love your enemies. I mean, my goodness, the application of that is daunting in all directions, mm-hmm. right? And I don't think he meant love them to death at the point of a gun. So <laughs> you you can have an, an ethical con, uh, conversation about the ethics of Jesus and this person's ethic or that person's ethic, and you can ask the reasonable question, do their ethics measure up with what Jesus actually said? Leaving the whole theological question to one side for a while. And actually many people are are actually quite surprised to find out what Jesus actually said at the Sermon on the Mount. Some of those places like, really? Said that? I didn't know that. Dang. You know, and, and then you have a conversation. And it's a good thing. Mm. Yeah, definitely. Um, so, well, okay. So going back to, um, I guess, no, no, that's a good Good, good question, Travis, for really throwing us off here. Yeah, you know, off, my off, attention. Uh, right. Is your dad really Amish, by the way? He was. He was. Yeah. Okay. Right now? Uh, sort of. Amish light, less knowing. He's, 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 he's left the Amish, yeah. Yeah. I dated a Mennonite once. I wasn't your dad, though, by the way. Okay. So that's good. Was that would have been a confusing time. A bonnet? Uh, sort of. She kind of, uh, we were theater people. Uh, so she wore this kind of. She did wear a hat a lot, but right. yeah, it was funky. It was good. <laughs> not like my Patriots hat. No, no, not. So no. you're celebrating uh, the victory. I'm, I'm celebrating. Yeah, that was that was good. I was it's I was patriotic not to celebrate. It is right. We're all patriots today, right? Isn't that what? Uh, like some good equivocation. <laughs> um, what uh, if we could go back to a second? Uh, back for a second to to this idea of of maybe some things in the church that we're doing that maybe aren't good or whatever. Hey, what do you see or maybe are the most harmful things that we're doing in the church? Uh, 
for the wider gospel in, in, initiative. And, and I mean, obviously, I think you would probably bring up the, the most recent election, but, but what else, maybe? Well, um, logical inconsistency is a very consistent problem in a schizophrenic culture that wants church over here and state over here. For example, I love to talk to people about having a proper biblical life ethic, like the ethic of Jesus, as in no abortion, no capital punishment, and by the way, no war. That's what love your enemies means. You don't murder them, okay? And what's interesting to me about that is uh, a lot of evangelical friends of mine, they're pro-birth, but they're really not pro-life. Right. Some of them are some of the hawkish people I've ever met in my life. And they, man, they want capital punishment. They want that person dead, you know, and, and good riddance. Mm -hmm. um, well, I would call that a logical inconsistency of thinking through a meaningful life ethic that, that, that deals with several issues at once. Now, we may agree that uh, there are some instances where it might be the lesser of two evils to, for example, save the life of the mother and abort uh, a, a really problematic pregnancy that was 99% likely to kill the mother. Okay, you could make that same case for a serial killer of 23 children sure. in Columbine. Okay, you could make that. It's a lesser of two evils argument. You can make that argument for war as right. well. But at least you have a consistent argument, and, and you, start, you don't start with the exceptions to the rule. You start with the rule. You don't make an, a, a, a rule out of the exceptions, right? You admit there are exceptional situations that have to be dealt with, and we deal with them as well as we can. But here's the difference. And my father and I talked about this, and he was a veteran in World War II. He understood what the Bible said about murder. And he, he said, you know, if I killed somebody, and I, I believed I did more than once in World War II, it's a sin. Therefore, I did this, which was what I thought was the best I could do on the occasion. But I repented of it as a sin later. I didn't celebrate it. And I didn't want to march down the street and be hailed as a hero for killing another human being. Now, that's actual Christian thinking about those issues. If, by golly, it's a sin to have an abortion, and yet it might be the lesser of two evils choices in some cases, not the majority of cases, but in some cases, well, then what do you do after the fact? You say, Lord, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, but I have these other four children, and they need me. Right? And I know of, I have a very good friend who made that choice. So otherwise, she was probably going to be dead. And with young children, you know, it's not good. You can always have another child, but you can't always have another mother. Sure, right? sure. And so, I mean, I under those, understand those tough lesser of two evils kind of choices. But as an ethical statement of what is my principle, my principle is totally pro-life. And then you take exceptions on a case-by-case -case basis. That, that's how I would would deal with that. What does that mean for me? Well, for me, it means I can't I can't serve in the police. It means I can't serve in the army, except as maybe a chaplain, like Mr. Doss in Hacksaw Ridge. I can serve as a chaplain and a medic. Yeah. I can patch them up, but I can't eliminate them, right? So there are roles I can play in the public sphere, and there are roles I can't play in order to be consistent with my ethical principles. I think if you really think through the ethics of Jesus and the ethics of Paul, for that matter, I mean, he's very, he's very clear. He's, he's, you know, if you read the end of Romans 12 and the end of Romans 13, then those last paragraphs, he's just implementing what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. You know, be good to your neighbors, love your enemies, um, and in so dealing burning hot coals on their head, maybe it'll pique their conscience to do the right thing. Um, I think I think they both had a very strong pro-life ethic, and he wanted Christians to do that. And certainly that's the message the early Christians got, because the early Christians would rather die as martyrs than kill another person. And they marched off to martyrdom, row after row after row, in the first and the second and the third and fourth century. You know, they, many of them, 
would use the example of, you know, when Peter put off the high priest slave's ear and said, and Jesus fixed that and said, don't go there again. And, and they took that as an example of exactly what not to do under pressure, right? So I think the early church was thinking through these things far more clearly than we are. Um, they, they were very concerned about these issues. They abandoned children. They would go take off hillsides and dock to prevent exposure of infants, which was a regular practice. Um, so it, it sounds like, in a sense, what you're saying um, with, with some of these things that you brought up is, let's say, in, in the context of, of uh, the pro-like ethic, Christians and war, that that there almost needs to be, even when we have to make, even if we think it's it's a just cause or whatever, there still has to be a sense of regret that we even have to make the choice. There still yeah. has to be a desire for the betterment of that individual. Yeah. Right? If you read Bonhoeffer, he came to a point of conviction that he needed to blow up Adolf Hitler. Sure. He's definitely a lesser to you. And he's a, he was a straight-up pacifist. Right. And he went to jail for it participating in the plot against Hitler, which, of course, was aborted and didn't succeed, right? Right. Um, so even a pacifist may come to a point where they think that the least unjust thing you could do is something like that. But it's going to be the absolute last resort. It's not going to be the first thing you do. Now, you don't shoot first and ask questions later, right? You don't do any of that because violence against another human being removes them out of the human sphere. And as a Christian, I'd say it prevents them from being able to repent and believe the gospel. And I don't think a lot of people think about that. It's like, yeah, you kill this person. Well, guess what? You sent them somewhere they didn't want to go. Um, so Although on the on the just war thing, I don't think we've had any in my lifetime. Not one that met the Geneva Convention or the just war theory, or was even a declared war. No, we haven't. I don't think. Is it true that we haven't, uh, as an, as as the United States, right? We haven't declared a war since World War II. Is that correct? Korea. That's correct. Did we did we declare war in Korea? Well, I don't, I'm not sure about that one, but anything after Korea, no. Right. Yeah, I think Vietnam was a policing action, things like that, right? Yeah. Um, so, Sunday after Sunday, uh, we're gathering in churches. We're, we're going to Bible studies. Uh, I, a lot of people here probably have uh, a session daily, maybe a few points, a few times a week, whatever, where we're, we're studying the Bible. Okay. So it seems like we're studying the Bible a lot. And, and indeed... Um, we can read the Bible in a way that, you know, for most of the history of the church, people have not been able to read the Bible. Yep. So what is it that we're doing wrong? Because it seems like we're able, uh, we, we have so much more access now to it. I mean, you know, you talked uh, a few minutes, a few moments ago about the early church and how well they got it. I, I doubt most of the people in the early church were reading the text and they, they didn't have access to it. And yet it seems like they, they, they got it. Yeah. So, so what's wrong? In the oral culture, they were continuously hearing it from people who could read and could share the texts, and, and they depended on that. I mean, if you read Justin Martyr, who's certainly not our brightest early apologist, nonetheless, he's absorbed an enormous amount of gospel, and that's, that's really clear from reading his various early apologies. It's, it's fascinating to read what he says and what he does. In terms of what we're missing now, one of the things we tend to do as conservative Protestants is spiritualize the gospel. Mm -hmm. I want the spiritual, I'm having my quiet time, and I'd like the spiritual nugget for a day that'll make me feel good in my heart as I go forth into the ugly world. Now, I understand that, and don't get me wrong, there's plenty of spiritual pith in the Bible. Of course there is. But to abstract spiritual nuggets from the Bible and ignore the ethical context in which they are given. I mean, when Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, and then 
or theirs as the kingdom of God. He was talking about the eschatological kingdom, where there's reversal, where the least, the last, and the lost become the first of most of the found, right? I'm riding down the street last week in Baton Rouge, and here is an advertisement. This is Blessed Are the Poor in Spirit. And below it, it says, Paul Kevin McKellarman, attorney at law, if you've been injured, it's wow. An ambulance. It's an ambulance. Wow. <laughs> it's wow. an ambulance. Jason, yeah. Right? Boy, we can we can misuse them, even the beatitude. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It's incredible. But what I see is, uh, I mean, one of the major emphases of Protestantism, farther or partly from Catholicism in the last 40 years, is spiritual formation. Which I don't think is a bad thing because we got a lot of spiritual disformation out there. Okay, <laughs> you're talking to a bunch of people that are spiritually disformed, by the way. So. Well, well, exactly, exactly. And and so, don't get me wrong. I think that's important, but it shouldn't be done abstracted from the rest of text of what's being said in the New Testament. I mean, ethics and the theology go together, and the various different kinds of ethics go. Together. The attitudes lead to what? teaching on marriage and divorce and adultery, and et cetera, et cetera, and it's part of a package, right? Mm -hmm. So I say a text without a context is just a pretext for whatever you want it to mean. Let's look at the whole context and try to apply the whole thing, not just these little nuggets that suit ourselves. And here's the other part of the problem. Human beings, even Christians, have an infinite capacity for rationalization, sure. for self-justification, yeah. right? And our tendency is to whittle off the parts that we find troubling or problematic or probing to us. We're going, no, I don't want that, Jesus. Can't I just listen to Joe Osteen and then I'll be okay? We'll have a happy Jesus today. Um, you know, I, the problem is that probably the part we most need to listen to are the ones that trouble us the most. Because that tells us who we are. That tells us who we aren't. And we have to ask, why does that part bother me? Now, what, why, am I, why am I having a Baylock's moment over that? You know? Because that tells you, that reveals something about yourself that you may not want to know. You know? I mean, I grew up in a, a pretty racist part of North Carolina. I saw a lot of that. And, you know, there were times when our Methodist church would go on retreat and we'd invite some of our African-American friends. And it, it was like a stroke of lightning sometimes. It would, it would hit some of my white friends. Oh, my gosh. My mother and daddy are racist. And that's how I've been raised. And Jesus is not happy with that at all. You know, a shock of recognition. Well, a lot of us need to come to shocks of recognition with some part of the, the text of the New Testament to have a reality check about who we are instead of having a sort of over-spiritualized, Gnosticized Jesus who gives us a devotional thought for the day. That's a problem, and, and I think America is the worst offender of that uh, in, in many ways. We'd rather have a Gnostic Jesus than the real Jesus who's in your face about so many things. So... So far in the course of the conversation, I think what we've come to uh, is that um, for the apologetic endeavor, that's even a word that, that, we're, that we're using right now, um, that, that our problem, number one, is that uh, we're not very good at listening okay, and, and meeting people where they're at. Uh, and Biblical illiteracy would be another major part of the problem. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Uh, during the course of uh, the dinner that we had with you, I think, um, it, I think it certainly came out uh, how much many of us who, you know, have degrees and in, in uh, from from seminaries and things like that, how much of the Bible we really don't know, uh, certainly came out. So biblical literacy, not listening, and then and then the tendency to over spiritualize uh, Jesus. Um, but I, I think you see that clearly. Because again, your work has been. Um, it, it, when we talk about the quest for the historical Jesus, I mean, those are those are folks who are uh, like yourself who aren't necessarily trained. I mean, you are trained theologically, but you're not coming at it theologically. You're coming at it as a historian, right? right? It's That's a different correct. discipline. So, so talk to me about that. What is? Yeah. So how well, is that different? One of the 
one of the reasons that some conservative Protestants and Catholics come unglued with all of this is that they don't understand that the historically reconstructable Jesus is only a subset of the real Jesus. I mean, what you can say on the basis of strictly historical principles uh, is this fact probable? Okay, where's the evidence for its probability, right? What you can construct on the basis of a strict historical method, even allowing for miracles, which I certainly do, is going to be at best a subset of the real Jesus. Now, it's going to be a true subset, but it's not the whole picture. So the quest for the historical Jesus is to get at what the historical method can accomplish, and it can accomplish everything, right? It, it, it just can't. Uh, and, and so you accept that it's a partial portrait, but it's true as far as it goes, which you shouldn't mistake the part for the whole, right? So, for example, uh, a study of historical Jesus is not going to include the study of Jesus after the ascension. Okay. Mm. Every genuine Christian I know believes Jesus is in heaven, he's busy. Sure. Right? Yeah. This is not part of the quest for the historical Jesus, or the pre-existence of the Son of God, not part of the quest for the historical Jesus. To give two illustrations. That doesn't make it, that tells you about the limitations of the historical method and historical inquiry. Uh, I mean, you can't sort of get to Yahtzee with the historical method, if your goal is to present people with a robust, full portrait of who Jesus was. But you can use that as a starting point with people that are historically serious and want you to be open and transparent about who the historical Jesus really was. Right? And so for me, all of that is a sort of starter kit to having a conversation with somebody who's not already a believer. Um. That's interesting that you say that um, because you, uh, you don't think of yourself as an apologist. No, but a lot of people see me that way. Right. It's interesting. Yeah. No, I'm a New Testament scholar who's very concerned with history as well as theology. I'm yeah. very concerned with both of those things. If you sort of lined up all my books, on the one hand, there's all these historical ones, all these commentaries and New Testament history, which... It's the best-selling book on New Testament history in the last 40 years or so. And on the other hand, all these books on theology, on the Holy Spirit, on the shadow of the Almighty Our Father, on umpteen books on Christ, you know, it should be clear that I'm trying to do both things at once. Mm -hmm. And uh, so some people see me as more of an apologist and some people see me more as a historian, partly because... Nobody's read everything I wrote. <laughs> that's <laughs> that's true. Yeah. So they don't know. Yeah. And that's fine. Yeah. I got you. you gotta but, keep them guessing. But but you but but I think what you're also doing though is is you're bringing everything that you have learned to a conversation, right. which is which is which is all any of us can do, and, and all any of us should be do. So in a sense, right. just we need to be better about the learning part. Well, absolutely, and and I, I mean I. We have an entrance exam, so you can place out of New Testament 1 in seminary. And this is seminary, not college. Right? Sure, sure. So here's the page of definitions at the top. It says define apostle. Below that it says define epistle. I actually had an incoming student that got apostle right, and then under define epistle wrote the wife of an apostle. This person did not place out of New Testament 1. Right? Yeah, the That's fantastic. And the epistles. Okay, there you know, go, yeah. You know, but, but seriously, here's somebody who wants to go into ministry, uh -huh. and their knowledge of even basics is so deficient. And what's even more scary is people who want to do an MA in pastoral counseling, pastoral counseling, who don't know the Bible worth doodly squat, but they're only going to take some of the baby Bible courses in seminary and then get mostly 90% pastoral counseling classes. So on what principles are they doing the pastoral counseling? Is it on biblical principles or is it on all this stuff they've learned in counseling theory? Right. You know? Yeah. Well, that's a serious question. And for my money, I'd want all of the degrees to have a very solid, meaty biblical track to it, whether they're doing church planning or whatever they're doing, because there are rampant biblical deficiencies in knowledge of what the Bible actually says on issues. Okay. Yeah, sure, yeah, go ahead. 
So to kind of follow up on that question, I had a question maybe uh, you could speak to about uh, young people in our in our culture today. Uh, here, several of us here are educators, uh, secondary school educators. So um, what would you say to a young, maybe 16, 17, 18-year-old high school student who has been raised in the church, uh, evangelical church, but various varieties, who's um, who's looking to be, you know, they want to remain a Christian, uh, but they are, you know, a little bit concerned about how to face the the cultural issues that they're facing today. Like, where where would they go? So many people go to immediately to online resources to try to find things about the Bible. Uh, some of them will look to pastors. Some maybe are at a Christian school, uh, like some of the ones in the area. But uh, there's a lot of confusion, I think, uh, along with what you said of the biblical illiteracy people already have. Of where do they go to find the the resources to remain a Christian themselves, much less to bring others to Christ? So, how would you counsel a young person in our day? Well. At that level, I think it's fundamental to have good textbooks for Christians that are in that kind of position. I mean, it's one of the things I've been concentrating on for the last five or six years is doing introductory textbooks on the New Testament uh, for Oxford. That could be entry-level Christian college material, but also a Christian high school that would already be ready for that kind of introductory level stuff. It's it's hard to be good curriculum that you can put in their hands that has resources, that has further things that they can, you know, the problem with the internet, as you know, is there's a reason a lot of that stuff on the internet is free. Hmm. It's junk. And a lot of it's Christian junk. Or a lot of it's antique Christian junk. And the reason it's free is it's in the public domain now. Now, there's a lot of good Christian stuff that's out there in the public domain, like, for example, the hymns of Charles Wesley, but, uh, and, and it's not junk, but they don't, they don't have the critical acumen to be able to decipher what's useful and what's not useful on the internet. So that requires the guidance of the teachers, and it requires good textbooks, and, and that's the two main ways I know how to, to combat that. And the, uh, the third way would be mentoring. The third way would be taking extra time besides just teaching these kids and sitting down with them and just answering questions, saying, you know, I'm going to stay an hour after school every day. If you have questions that you'd like to ask or just you'd like some resources, I'm there, I'm available, come talk to me. You have a chance to mentor a young mind that way. And, um, I mean... When you establish that kind of one-on-one relationship, that can make far more impact than just a textbook or an occasional reminder about something because they are looking for personal examples to follow, you know, and, and a teacher has an opportunity to model for them what it's like to learn more about your faith and how to properly study and how to think critically. One of the problems I found in the initial homeschool movement, in, uh, you know, as a react, which was unfortunately a reaction to integration of public schools, is a failure to teach them how to think critically. No, this is the truth. Here are the answers. Just data download the answers into your cerebrum, and then you're good, right? That's no good in a world full of menace and harm and violence and big questions. That's, I understand the desire of parents to protect their children. I get that. I mean, I understand that's part of the homeschool thing and the classical Christian school thing. And there's some, a good side to that. But the bad side of it is what my wife sees at Asbury University all the time. She has all these homeschool kids who are socially not ready for prime time in the real world at all because they've had almost no such interaction. And they have to learn all that at a Christian college. You know, well, how's that going to happen in a profoundly Christian college like a Wheaton or like a Gordon College or like Asbury University? Well, it's hard. They'd have to go out and meet real people in the real world. It's difficult to help them make that adjustment. Here's what I think. I don't think we should be protecting our children to that degree. I think if you believe greater is he who is in me than these things in the world, then carefully and prayerfully they should be exposed 
to the general public in various ways at various times so they can begin to think critically about well what's wrong with that lifestyle and this person's ideas or whatever because until they meet real people that really have such a lifestyle or such views it's just going to be an abstract conversation and so you know i i would prefer for them to be able to interact maybe through sports or other kind of ways with people that are not like themselves and i think that would